Hi, I'm Andy English, and this is Headley Boys, a small town's big part in the Great War. I acknowledge that the town of Headley is in the traditional territory of the Samilkameen people. Episode 2 A Baptism of Fire. With William Lidicote's departure, life in Headley carried on as normal. The sports day was a great success, and thoughts were now turning to winter. There were a number of men, though, who had other things on their mind, like getting their affairs in order. These were members of the Rocky Mountain Rangers, a local militia unit that had a depot in Penticton. Some of these men also had prior service with the British Army. They were the reserves that were originally intended to form the Canadian Expeditionary Force, but the speed with which Sam Hughes had created his new army out east had left these men awaiting orders. Men like William Tucker, another big Cornishman who would go on to distinguish himself many times over the next four years. There was Arthur Coles and Thomas Hepper, both from Somerset in the southwest of England. Arthur was a railway surveyor, and Thomas, according to his army attestment papers, was a surveyor's helper. There was also Sed Edwards, also from Somerset. He was a millman at the stamp mill. There was the eldest of five brothers, John Corrigan. They were originally from Hope, but he and his four other brothers had all ended up in Headley. He would serve four years in France with the 29th Battalion, participating in all the battles that they would fight. And then there was Daniel Dolomore, the young man who at the age of 13 had crossed the Atlantic and North America all on his own just to be with his big brother Frank. Daniel was at this time only 17 years old. In his photos he certainly looks older, so the army had a way of dealing with this. He puts down his proper date of birth, April 10th, 1897. Clearly shows him only being 17. But on the back of the attestation paper is a line that says, Apparent age. And here is written, 19 years. That was all it took for an underage boy to be accepted into the Canadian Army in 1914. They were just some of the many men who were now receiving orders to report for duty. Through November into December, small groups of men from Headley and Carameas started to travel to Vancouver and Victoria, where they were to be enlisted into the CEF. There was a close connection between Headley and Carameas. The Headley Gazette had a page devoted to Carameas News, and these men were all a part of the Rocky Mountain Ranges together. Their service numbers in some cases are consecutive, implying they were standing next to each other at the recruitment depot. The Headley Carameas soldiers served together in a number of different battalions, especially at the beginning of the war. Most of these men were eventually assigned either to the 15th or 29th Infantry Battalions or to the 2nd Canadian Mounted Rifles. This was nominally a cavalry unit, and much of their early training on Vancouver Island was on how they envisioned at performing as traditional cavalry. On the 28th of January 1915, the Headley Gazette published a letter written to the bank manager, C.P. Dalton. The sender was Marcus Jacobs, one of the men now in the 2nd CMR. He had worked at the stamp mill in Headley for over five years and was a regular attendee at all the notable Headley events. The Headley Gazette, Headley BC, Thursday, January 28, 1915. Letter from Headley Boy. The following letter from Victoria may be of interest to many of our readers. B Squadron, 2nd Canadian Mounted Rifles, Willow Camp, Victoria. C.P. Dalton, Esquire. Dear Sir, 
I am dropping you a few lines to let you know how I am getting along. I am getting on fine here, and I like it, but it is awfully muddy for it has rained a great deal lately. We had orders the other day to prepare for an early departure, and I think we are going to be used mostly at the front for advance work, patrolling, scouting, and as cavalry screen, as we have been trained a great deal lately in that kind of work. We are all supposed to know semaphoring. There is a fine bunch of fellows in the Canadian Mounted Rifles, and I think we will make a good show when we get to Germany. I wish I had a Headley banner to fly outside my tent. There are several banners here from different towns in the interior, but none representing Headley, and there should be one as there are four Headleyites here. Hill Innes is in Victoria. He has his name in for the CMR. I hope he manages to get in. Please remember me to all the boys. Yours very truly, Marcus Jacobs. While the next round of recruiting was going on in Canada, the Canadian Expeditionary Force had arrived safely in England. After a spot of leave when he visited his family in Cornwall, William Lidicote found himself on Salisbury Plain, where Stonehenge is, in the southwest of England. There the Canadians spent a thoroughly cold, miserable few months during the wettest winter in years. Little did they know that this would be good preparation for what they would face in the trenches. While there, the force was designated as the 1st Canadian Division, and on the 16th of February 1915, they sailed to France, and they were in the front lines by the beginning of March. They took over trenches that had been held by the French, and these needed much improvement. At this stage of the war, the Allies were not preparing for a long stage of Haitians and static warfare. They expected to be advancing against the Germans come spring. Consequently, the trenches were not considered to be permanent, and so the vast network of reserve, support and communication trenches were not yet constructed. The British had launched their big offensive on the 10th of March at Neuve-Chapelle, and the Canadian division gave supporting fire. The attack, while at first successful, eventually saw all the ground taken, lost back to German counter-attacks, and so set in a pattern for the next year or so of the war. While the British were still recovering from that offensive, the Germans launched one of their own. Known as the Second Battle of Ypres, it featured the first use of poison gas as a battlefield weapon. On the 22nd of April, the Germans released gas on French troops north of the Canadians. The French, terrified by this new horror weapon, fled, and the Germans took over their positions. The next day it was the turn of the Canadians, though they had been forewarned about the use of gas and quickly had urine-soaked face masks to offer some sort of protection. These helped them to hold off the Germans, who now then focused their attention on the Canadian forces in the village of Saint-Julien. Among these were men from the 7th Battalion, including William Lidicote. During the ferocious fighting that went on around the village, the Canadians had taken heavy casualties. They were eventually forced out of St. Julien, but not before blunting the German attack, which had now run out of momentum. During the battle, the Canadians suffered 60% casualties among the troops taking part. One of these was William Lidicote, who was admitted to a field hospital on the 24th of April, suffering a back strain. One can but imagine the blast of a shell that would throw a man through the air and leave them without a scratch, except for a back strain and a few weeks later he is in hospital again, being treated for shock. No doubt a consequence of what he had recently been through. And this was just the beginning for the Canadians. In the next month, they would be on the offensive. Headley had continued to say goodbye to men as they left to join up. After the militia and reservists had gone to Vancouver, two more Headley men took different routes. One, Charles Christiana, originally a printer from Cornwall, 
and an ex-soldier from the Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry, like fellow Cornishman William Lidicote, took the same route, enlisting as William. He travelled to Quebec, where he joined the 48th Highlanders, who were soon to become the 15th Battalion. He sent his friends in Headley a picture of himself in a kilt, which caused much amusement. And on the eve of the Second Battle of Ypres, a world away in Winnipeg, Manitoba, a steam engineer from the nickel plate was preparing to reacquaint himself with his old commanding officer. Thomas Calvert had been born in Lancaster in the north of England in 1881. As a young man, he had served overseas in the South African Constabulary. This had been set up to police newly captured territory during and after the South African War. The colonel in charge of B Division was none other than Sam Still, the ex-Mountie and commander of Strathcona's horse. It seems that Thomas Calvert made a good impression while he served with him, because on the 21st of April 1915, he visited Sam Still at his house in Winnipeg, and who then noted in his diary, Bagnall called with Calvert. And the very next day, Thomas Calvert is signed into the army. Sam Still had just been appointed commander of the 2nd Division, and it was his aide-de-camp, or ADC, who signed Thomas up. Thomas was also issued with the unusual service number of 13. Soon, General Still would be heading to England to take command of all Canadian forces there, and going with him was his Batman, Thomas Calvert, formerly of the nickel plate mine, Headley. The Canadian division had won much respect for the way they stood their ground and fought at the Second Battle of Ypres. They now spent the next month resting and bringing in replacement units. One of these was the 15th Battalion that now included Charles Christiana, Sid Edwards, and some of the Karameers volunteers such as Robert McCurdy and Bob Hogg. The Canadians were now going to be called upon to take part in an attack centred round the village of Festibut in the Artois region of France. It was a part of a larger offensive by the French and British intended to break through the German lines. At this stage of the war, most of the ground between the opposing armies was still open countryside, with fields, hedgerow and trees. The deep emplacements and pillboxes, forests of barbed wire and the pockmarked landscapes were not yet a feature of the war. Mendo still lived in dugouts and trenches, as to show yourself above ground in daylight was invariably fatal. On May the 15th the battle started. An impressive 433 artillery pieces fired 100,000 shells in 60 hours. The initial advance over a 5 kilometre front had some success, but losses started to mount in the open fields. Men who were exposed with virtually no cover. And on the 18th of May, the Canadians were ordered to La Basse, south of Festibut, to attack. They too made little progress in the face of withering machine gun fire and artillery crashing all around them. The July 8th, 1915 edition of the Headley Gazette published a letter from Bob McCurdy on his experiences at Festibut. The following interesting letter was received recently by Mr D McCurdy of Caramis from his son Bob, who is now in a hospital in England recovering from wounds received while in the fighting line. Later news from him has been received in which he says that he will soon be ready to try conclusions with the Germans again. The letter is as follows. Lincoln, England, June 2nd, 1915. Dear Dad, just a few lines as I am not too bad now. I have lost my right eye and I have a few more small wounds, but not bad. I can see fairly well with my left eye and have the use of my hands and feet, and my cheekbone, which was shattered a bit, is nearly well, so that I can eat without much pain. And my appetite would keep an army transport busy carrying bully beef and biscuit to me where I am in the trenches. But here I am well fed and am getting fine treatment. And one thing that always eases my mind is the fact that we won the position we went after. 
though the cost was pretty heavy. I can't say how the rest of the Karameas 5 fared, but Sid, Bob and Billy were still standing when I went down. I have not been able to learn anything of them since. We will hope they came out, though we must not expect that they all came out without a scratch, for men were falling thick and fast that night. It was the 20th of May at a place near Labassa. When I came to my senses, there were two braves lying on top of me. I did not know them. One was dead, and the other, what was left of him, was dying. So I got out from under them and crawled out the best I could over the dead and dying, which were about in hundreds. As the stretcher bearers were very busy, I did not bother them but turned stretcher bearer myself and assisted another poor chap I knew to get along to the first aid dressing station about one and a half miles behind the lines. It was cruel work as the shells were dropping in hundreds about us all the way, and for some distance a machine gun fire rained on us like hell. Great music, it helps a fellow to move. Many a poor chap gets killed making his way out after being wounded. The Huns killed wounded as well, you know. If they can't get them with shot and shell, they try gassing them. They tried gas that night, but fortunately the wind would not carry it. Well, I must stop now as my good lamp is a little weak and nurse says, cut it out for today. However I say this, I'm proud to be a Canadian. Any man who goes through that hell and still has his life, it matters not what portions of his body are gone, should thank his lucky stars and the great almighty. So long, Bob. The Battle of Festubert had several long-term consequences. By the 25th of May, the British had advanced three kilometres and they now dug in on their new front line. The tremendous use of shells had led to a shortage and so the attack had to be halted. This was to lead to the shell shortage scandal in Britain that would eventually lead to the government's fall. It also changed British strategic thinking. From now on, offensives would start with a large prolonged artillery bombardment. But to do that, it would require millions of shells, and these numbers would not be available for the rest of the year. So production would have to be massively increased with huge munitions factories all over the UK. Also, the next offensives would be on much larger 30, 40 or even 50 kilometre fronts, not the three kilometres of Festival. And in Headley, one consequence of the battle changed the town forever. A week after Bob McCurdy's letter, the Headley Gazette published this. Headley Gazette, Thursday, July 15th, 1915. Headley Boy Killed in Action. A letter received by Mr Alfred J Edwards of Winchester, Massachusetts, reports the death of his son, Sidney J Edwards, in Belgium, on the night of May the 20th. He was instantly killed by the bursting of a shell while performing duty as a member of a machine gun section. Sidney John Edwards was the son of Mr and Mrs Alfred J Edwards of Wedgemere Heights, Massachusetts, he was a graduate of the Winchester High School and of the Burdett Business College of Boston. Following his graduation, he was in the employ of the A.C. Lawrence Lever Company of Boston for a number of years. He left Winchester nine years ago and went to the Canadian Northwest, where he secured employment in the reduction plant of the Headley Gold Mining Company at Headley, B.C. At the opening of enlistment in Canada, he joined the British forces and was a member of the first Canadian contingent to go to the continent. He was 36 years of age. The following letter was received by Mr Edwards from Lieutenant H. Price of Sid Edwards Company. France, May the 24th, 1915. To Mr A.J. Edwards, Winchester, Massachusetts, USA. Dear Mr Edwards, It is with deep regret that I have to tell you about the death of Sidney J. Edwards, who was a member of my platoon. He was killed on the night of May the 20th while performing his duty as only a Britisher can. 
About two weeks ago, he was taken from my platoon to help form a machine gun section, and it was while acting in that capacity that he was killed by the bursting of a shell. It would be little consolation to you to know that he did not suffer at all, for he was killed instantly, and also to know that he was a general favourite with everybody with whom he was brought into contact. I feel like all the members of the platoon that I have lost a brother. He was certainly a son to be proud of, and his was a glorious end, one which I would look upon with pride if he was a son of mine. I can assure you that you have the heartfelt sympathy of every man in the platoon. Accept my sympathy, and believe me, yours very sincerely, H. Price, Lieutenant. The above from the Winchester, Massachusetts Star refers to Sid Edwards, who worked in the mill and was well and favourably known here, and the news of his death will be read with regret by many of our Headley people. Sidney Edwards was the first man from Headley to be killed during the war, and sadly he would not be the last. News of his death sent shock throughout the town. Flags were flown at half-mast, and the cold realisation of what this war was going to cost now hit home. The people of Headley had already been helping the war effort in small ways, but now, after Sid's death, all that was going to change. Headley Boys was written, produced and presented by Andy English. Maple Leaf Forever was performed by Cindy Rieger in the Grace Church, Headley. <laughs>